0: Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, South African President Ramaphosa has inherited an economy bogged down by corruption and mismanagement. Can he turn it around? The International Criminal Court acquitted former Ivorian President Laurent Gbagbo for crimes against humanity. In theory, he could contest the presidential elections in 2020. Will Ivorian politics become more volatile? Plus, we have our second discussion in our occasional series on analyzing Africa. We talk about the art of analysis. How do you think through leadership transitions in sub-Saharan Africa? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we wanna get you into Africa. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa is seeking to revive his country's economy, but years of mismanagement and corruption have made his task exceedingly difficult.
1: Well, we're now taking action. We've identified the effect of skills mismatch at municipal level, where people who are not well fait with finances are CFOs. People who've never managed anything are municipal managers.
0: Joining me today to discuss South Africa's economic challenges is Jeffrey Herbst, president of the American Jewish University in Los Angeles and co-author of Democracy Works, Rewiring Politics to Africa's Advantage. Amaka Anku, who leads Eurasia Group's Africa Practice. And Michael Knoll, a lecturer at the George Washington University. Jeff, can you set the stage for us? After Zuma's disastrous tenure, Ramaphosa inherited this economy that has this weak growth, poorly run peristatals, corruption is rampant throughout the ruling party and the government. What is your take on the state of the South African economy?
2: President Ramaphosa is certainly a better manager than President Zuma, but that's a very low bar indeed. In fact, the South African economy has been growing too slowly for 20 years, uh, and then growth dropped uh, during the Zuma years. Ramaphosa has made some reforms, but they're simply not significant enough yet for the economy to fundamentally change its trajectory. And there are real doubts that the ANC as a political party has the wherewithal to make the necessary changes to really turn the economy around.
0: Amaka, what do you think? Is Jeff right? Can Ramaphosa turn this around? What should he be doing? What's realistic?
1: I think the biggest economic problem in South Africa is in part a political problem. And of course that's easy for me to say, I'm a political analyst, right? But the the biggest thing that's driving South African politics is this debate about how should we transform the economy to reflect South Africa's demographics, Mm -hmm. right? Like to increase black participation. And there's one side that thinks that you get growth through redistribution. The other side thinks you get redistribution through growth, right? So the Zuma faction of the ANC and of course the EFF, they all think, well, we need to redistribute and then we'll grow. Ramaphosa and people like the DA think that you need to, you know, grow the economy. This dichotomy is in part what's holding growth back. What he really needs to do is restore investor confidence, create a favorable regulatory environment, and reform SOEs. But all of these things is really hard to do because of the division within the ANC about how you should drive growth. Because he has to play both sides to keep the party together, he has to continue to push reluctantly things like expropriation without Mm -hmm. compensation, and in in turn, those things will continue to hurt investor confidence. It's, It's a vicious cycle.
2: Jeff, did you have a point you wanted to add? I would put a little less emphasis on the intellectual debate and note that the ANC has grown very accustomed to the perks of power over the last 25 years. This is about real material benefits uh, that a large number of people in the party have received from the way government operates at the moment. And separating the ANC from the perks of power is going to be very, very difficult. President Ramaphosa has been one of the primary beneficiaries in his private sector career of BEE, which uh, uh, is a profoundly problematic policy when it comes to investor confidence.
0: Well, I think I can kind of split split the baby between Amaka and your point, Jeff, because when I think about these challenges that that Sierra Ramaphosa has, I think about how difficult it is to put together a team that either has the intellectual continuity that Amaka is talking about or one that isn't rife with corruption and the material benefits of the last 20-plus years that you're talking about, Jeff. He put in finance minister Nene, who by all accounts, was a very competent manager, but he got caught up in some of the the corruption scandals. Another minister was had to quit because he lied under oath. The deputy president, David Mambuza, has got corruption challenges. So does the secretary general. I don't even know how he keeps a steady team to push forward his agenda. And of course, this anti-corruption process is ongoing and the drumbeat just keeps getting louder. So, Mike, let me bring you in the conversation. Tell us about the commission of inquiry into state capture. It's been a roller coaster, right? One revelation after another. You know, what are the highlights so far?
3: The commission was created in January of last year by then Vice President Ramaphosa. Uh, It went after issues of corruption. Um, I think the biggest kind of fish that was caught was the Gupta family, which were involved in bribery and fraud. Most of the Gupta family have left the country at this point. There's other officials who've
0: also been kind of involved in this. Even though the Guptas, I think, have gotten a pass so far, or they've claimed that they've dropped the charges, I mean, ministers are are still being hauled in front of the Zonda commission. I would expect us to see uh, Ramaphosa continue to struggle with how does he keep the competent managers safe from this investigation while wanting due process to run its court course. And layered on top of all of this is they got to win an election uh, in May. How does the election play into all of this? The
2: commission hearings are a real shining moment for South African democracy. I mean, they are unpacking a very difficult and recent part of their history in a very public manner in a way that not only very few African countries, but very few countries, period, would do. I think as far as the elections, I think the margin that the ANC wins by is not the most interesting thing. I think they'll win, not least because the opposition still hasn't developed a coherent identity and because they were counting on winning against President Zuma, in part. The real issue, I think, is how many South Africans are going to stay on the sidelines and not vote at all, indicating increasing distance and alienation from the political system and the possibility of someone in the future uh, creating a coalition of the marginalized.
0: I am restraining myself so hard not to talk about Nigeria, and I know Amaka feels the same way, but we're going to try not to have another episode of Nigeria, because this whole show could just be called Into Nigeria, and I would be extraordinarily happy, but Amaka, on South Africa and the election.
1: So, I disagree slightly with Jeff here, because, at least from the investor perspective, the reason. The margin by which Ramaphosa and the ANC wins is important is because the the stronger he appears the more influence he can have over his party the more influence he has over the the party the more he can push some of these less investor friendly policies even
0: if there's the turnout to the
1: back of the burner right right and hope that everybody can forget about it even if the turnout is lower than it has been all of the structural issues we've been talking about SOE reform, growth, they're all things that require really long-term, like you're not gonna transform the state-owned enterprises in the next two years. If he can demonstrate that, if investors feel like he's getting back control, and that might help push growth a bit.
3: Not to bring Nigeria up again, but I do think you have probably the two biggest economies in Sub-Saharan Africa, and you're trying to turn these economies around and make them be, be very successful but they're being operated on by the political elite. and I think that's a very big challenge for for these longer-term solutions on the economy, kind of following up yeah, on I that. Yeah, that's and absolutely right.
1: Because the elections are coming up, we've seen them drag their feet on things that they don't want to do right? because they want to see how strong they'll be after the elections. And for the investors, that's good, right? Ramaphosa is dragging his feet on the constitutional amendments, right? Like, there things like that are not going anywhere before the elections, and that's good for the economy ultimately. After 82...
3: After 82 witnesses, the prosecution still could not prove that President Bagbo was guilty. So we believe that given this lack
0: of evidence, Laurent Bagbo should be released. In Cote d'Ivoire, the International Criminal Court in January acquitted former President Laurent Bagbo and um, the youth leader Charles Blais Goudet from all charges of crimes against humanity. This has really rocked Ivorian politics. They're back to the drawing board and thinking about their political alliances. Mike, can you bring us up to speed? You know What happened? in Cote d'Ivoire that led to uh, Bagbo and Blé Goudé being dragged in front of the ICC? It
3: starts in uh, 2010, uh, where Cote d'Ivoire had uh, presidential elections, where it saw Bagbo, then the president, uh, face off against Alassane Ouattara. Uh, Bagbo, whose mandate expired in 2005, had been delaying elections. There was a second round of elections that occurred in November of 2010, and the Electoral Commission in Cote d'Ivoire declared Ouattara the winner. Bagbo's party and the Constitutional Council, which had Bagbo-influenced people on it, uh, essentially Declared Watara illegitimate and claims of fraud. They excluded votes from the northern provinces of Cote d'Ivoire, and essentially it made Bagbo the winner by I think it was like 51 percent. The international community came in, then they recognized Watara, and then it started to get very complicated. Where we have allegations of then President Bagbo uh, using ethnic militia. There were attacks. We then had foreign troops enter the fray with the UN and French involved. Bagbo ordered them to leave. He cut the the press. On 11 April of the next year, 2011, we basically have Bagbo arrested outside of Abidjan. And um, basically, Wattara declared the the leader. Then shortly after that, Bagbo was asked, or brought to the ICC. And in Europe, they had these criminal investigations. And that's where we are today. Basically, he's been released as of early last
0: month. Yeah. So now we are in this scenario because he only had one term, as Mike said, he just had 10 years of one term that he could run again. And we started to see... Almost immediately, Watara starting to walk back from his commitment to step down at the end of his second term, which would be in 2020. I could see a scenario that Watara runs again, Laurent Bogbo is running again, and then the president who preceded both of them, Henri Bedier, who is you know been around the scene for a very long time, he could be running again. We'll have the same three old dudes running again. Jeff, how do we? Why do we see the same elites every time running decade after decade? You know, uh, there are places I can say, look, Abi in Ethiopia is a young man. There's a number of dynamic young South African politicians, but at the top, it's still this older generation. And what accounts for this?
2: Every country has its own history and idiosyncrasies, but I would say as a generality, most African elections are not contested on policies. Nor are political parties particularly strong. So uh, parties tend to be coalitions around particular leaders who can promise their direct followers uh, something, whether it's political power or perks or the like. Uh, so leaders can stick around for a very long time if they can maintain personal ties uh, with a distinct group of constituencies.
0: A young politician is going to have to figure out how to navigate these patriot networks if they're going to you know, rise up. For me, this is a, a really potent mix of players, and I do think that it has implications for Ivorian stability. I didn't mention a fourth candidate, uh, former National Assembly President Gilliam Soro, who led the rebels during the Civil War. He had been Bogbo's prime minister and then a key ally for Ouattara. He wants to run as well. Um, He's really close to the former rebels who have been integrated into the military and have been behind a series of protests and mutinies in 2016 and 2017. So, Amaka, how do you think about the security environment?
1: I would be surprised if we do have a scenario where it's Watara, Babo, and Radier. Okay. And I also don't think Watara will end up running again, but I I, I tend to think that even if Babo were to be released eventually, I'm pretty sure Watara would cut some sort of deal with him if he wants to come home. He probably can't, wouldn't be able to run come right? in, home in, in exchange, in, yeah, come right. home to Cote d'Ivoire. Yeah. In exchange for, because there's a sentence outstanding for 20 years for him, there are charges. So, you know, Watra will have leverage there. With that background, I actually tend to counterintuitively think that the fact that he's been released and is going back, even though it's appended the political landscape, is ultimately good for stability hmm. in Cote d'Ivoire. Because what was going to happen, if you take Babo out, What was going to happen was Watara was look like he was about to just bulldoze the PDCI and come back. Even if Babo isn't running, Babo is one person who can unite his former coalition. Having that third force, I think, rebalances the political landscape. You know, it's like you have two two guys in a fistfight and then you have a third person. Those two guys in a fistfight might now stop and try to negotiate with a third yeah. guy.
0: And it's a good point because if you look at the history of um, Ivorian elections, 95, 2000, it, yeah. they're often about... These three regions and alliances between of uh, them,
1: and everyone knows that you can't win the yeah, presidency on your, on your own.
0: We'll figure out who's the contestants uh, in 2020, and then we can come back and kind of and see uh, see where CotiVara is. I want to move to the main topic today. This is the second in our series on analyzing Africa. In episode five, we talked about big data, essentially the science of analysis. So today we're going to talk about the art of analysis. And I, I wanted uh, our guests to have this background in an academic and a commercial sense about political risk and analyzing Africa. So Jeff in 2003 published an article in African Affairs about the U.S. intelligence community's record on South Africa during the apartheid era. Mike is a lecturer at George Washington University. We together teach a class on U.S. analysis on Africa. And Amaka does a very similar thing, but for political risk um, for her corporate customers at uh, Eurasia Group. So. Since we're talking about intelligence, I'm going to just make sure that everything is good with my old employer and make sure that I'm clear that these views are my views and my views only, and they don't uh, imply endorsement from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence or any U.S. government agency. Just let me put that caveat uh, on the table. Okay, so the most interesting thing that I think Mike and I have discovered in our you know, research and courses is the way in which... People talk about leadership analysis and the IC's record, the intelligence community's record on this is is actually, it's really difficult to get this right. It's really difficult to figure out whether or not uh, the new leader, after a long period of uh, a a big man, someone who's dominating the political scene, what they're going to be like and whether or not they're going to actually be able to create their own patronage networks and to lead. in our class, I think we found that most times analysts underestimate the incoming leader. So, Mike, can you talk us a little bit about uh, some of the stuff we learned from Kenya? What did, were the analysts saying about uh, Jomo Kenyatta's uh, successor, Daniel Rapmoy?
3: We read over declassified documents from the intelligence community on on Jomo Kenyatta. He had been ill in the late 60s, and they were starting to write on the on his health in the the early 1970s. They were very concerned with Kenyatta dying. And they were looking to see who would take over. And they really would just go through all the people who were prominent in the government and kind of do an assessment of them. Uh, And and they went over then President, Vice President Moy. They kind of wrote him in these pieces saying this person, although the Constitution says he, he holds presidential office for a few months after the president dies, that there's a very good chance that he just basically based on his ethnic constituency, his influence, and all these other, at that point, supposedly more powerful leaders within the government, that he wouldn't make it.
0: Let me just do some quotes, Mike. So yeah. in 1970, there was an assessment that they called Moy inept and in a Kikuyu stooge. The, that's the ethnic group of Jomo Kenyatta. Uh, In 72, they thought his presidency that he would largely be a figurehead with real power resting in the Kikuyu inner circle. They said, moreover, Moy appears to lack the necessary political skills and sufficient backing to challenge Kikuyu hegemony. And so in 78, Moy takes over. And what happens? I mean, he immediately is quite adept.
3: He's been sitting there with, as far as we can tell, with Kenyatta watching these various ethnic communities, watching the leaders. Some of them were extremely inept, although they were loyal to Kenyatta. They weren't very good at managing the government or the positions they held. And he quickly plays off the larger Kikuyu and Luo ethnic communities off one another and meshes a kind of coalition of smaller ethnic communities and forges along and it survives um, a couple of economic crises, a weak attempt at a coup in the early 80s, and it flourishes for a couple of decades in office.
0: I mean, he's in power from 1978 until 2002, and the assessment was that he was going to be weak and inept. And I can find examples throughout the historical record. Uh, when Senegalese President Senghor handed over power to Abdujouf, they thought he was not particularly popular, doesn't project himself well in front of groups, has no experience in grassroots electoral politics. He rules Senegal for two decades. And if it's not about the longevity of the leader, sometimes it's a, a misunderstanding about you know how transformative they may be. And Jeff, you've done some work on de Klerk. So what did the analysts think about F.W. de Klerk?
2: Well, Chad, while I agree with you about the IC's record, I would argue the academic record on predicting leadership (laughs) capabilities, especially new leaders, is no better. Uh, Uh, Okay, uh, I thought you were going to say the opposite. Those those are fighting words, words, Chad. Oh, we were getting excited (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think the clerk was actually the greatest failure. Uh, given the amount of attention that was devoted to South Africa by the IC, by the academic community, uh, by, unusually for Africa, the media, and no one had him uh, doing uh, what he did, where he was, you know, utterly essential uh, to moving South Africa towards transformational change. I think you have to ask, why would a potential leader demonstrate uh, obvious competency with a Political base that was contrary to the current ruler. Uh, wouldn't that be a kind of a prescription uh, for a relatively short political career? Uh, lurking in the background, uh, biding your time, uh, not being associated with any particular policies or even constituencies, is in a situation where Uh, the health and political primacy of the leader is the key variable, Uh, that's the play. And that's what I think has continually confounded analysts who can only look at uh, the day-to-day operation of the potential leader and not the political calculations that he or sometimes she may be making.
0: No, I think that's a really astute comment. We're blind to an aspiring leader's true political acumen because part of their acumen is keeping that hidden. Mike, in class we talked a lot about, you know, how do you avoid these traps? In you know, should analysts just not make calls like that? Or or is there a better way to, to present the challenges a leader may face? Yeah,
3: I think one of the things we found when we did look at even – um, you know, academic literature as well as the the Intel, the declassified intelligence was that they often make quite a few mistakes about the assessment of the individual. When they start to look at in the country about the factors that keep people in positions of power, the economy, the ethnic combination, the ethnic communities that are vying for influence, the military's power, the role in the region, the former colonial powers, and then reflect that on either candidates or somebody who's new to office, we've found them to be a little bit more successful in kind of understanding either candidates or new people in executive positions is probably, in terms of analysis, the hardest thing to do. When you flip the table over and do look at the factors or what we would call pillars of stability in a country, I think that helps you understand what a leader will need to do to balance power.
0: Maka, does this ring true to you? I mean, how do you think about talking about new leaders in in sub-Saharan Africa with your clients? Yeah,
1: I mean, I I think the circumstances are very different in some of the ones that we've just talked about today where we were looking at a fairly autocratic environment where there was one dominant leader, and usually those kinds of autocratic leaders tend to hand over to people they think they can control. And the people they think they, they can control, as Jeff rightly pointed out, is someone who hasn't shown his cards. So it makes sense that you would miss that call. But I think it's different in a more democratic, like, democratic environment like Nigeria or Senegal that just voted because you have people who are actually campaigning on something and you can look at their record. There's concrete evidence there in a way that there isn't in that environment where you had the autocratic dominant ruler.
0: We could have a former you know, local governor in Kenya be president one day, or in Nigeria, we've had some governors. But in positions where they've been able to exercise power, executive power, I think that's helpful. But I could also list a number of democracies in which the ruling party selected someone who they thought would be pliable. Um, and they turned out to be, for better or for worse, not that. I mean, Magafuli was a compromise candidate in Tanzania. The former Lungu was a compromise candidate in Zambia. The, the leader of Guinea-Bissau, Vaz, was a compromise candidate, and he has completely upended their politics. So, I think you're right. Like, democracy gives you a better insight. But I... I you know, not surprising since I spend a lot of time with Mike. Agree that thinking about some of the structural challenges that they face and presenting that to a, a client, a customer, a senior policymaker helps navigate this analytical minefield a little more clearly.
3: Just, just yeah. on, I would just comment is it- doing a real scrub of your biases toward these candidates and towards the the country itself, and so that when you do look at these things you you're a little bit more detached and i think it gives you a little bit more of a sense of like what is the possible yeah and you you are able to not constrain yourself to listening to media or others and and kind of winnowing it down to two or three people or uh, two or three situations. Because often when something does happen, it made total sense to you once it happened. Often if you try to remove those biases, a little bit better chance of not being surprised because of events.
0: You know, My favorite exercise is to say, how could I be wrong? If I have a position on a particular leader and what how they're gonna govern, I usually wanna ask myself, how could I be wrong? And then try to sketch that argument out. And what it does is it provides me a framework to see that if that's truly happening, even if my my you know mainline assessment is that this person will be sort of unremarkable, et cetera, going the other way and having that intellectual exercise prepares me uh, for discontinuity. I want to just go around the table for sort of any final thoughts on this before we wrap up. Amaka?
1: I think it's easy to say really scrub your biases. It's easier said than done. You know, the only way it's obvious, the only way is just to try and surround yourself with and talk to a lot of people who you know disagree with you and sort of ask yourself sort of whatever the outcome it is that I think will happen, what kind of political capital does it require for that? And what is evidence that that exists or doesn't?
0: That's a great point. Mike, I just think that you
3: have to have an analytic toolkit that allows you to think differently than mainstream analysis, and I think that's a really important thing to to be able to to develop as a political thinker.
0: Great. Let me, Jeff. Let me give you the final final word.
2: To me, one of the, if not the, overarching question is: Is the old way of doing business possible for the new leader? Um, and if it is, because there are still some resources available. Uh, then I think you have uh, uh, one path. If it isn't, uh, then a new leader opens the possibility, but not the inevitability of change. Uh, Declerc said essentially, uh, if if apartheid would have worked, I might have shown it a different way, but it wasn't working for his constituency. Uh, So he sought the best deal that he could possibly get. Um, And I think abstracting a little bit from personalities and saying, look, does this system continue are there enough resources or is there a kind of discontinuity unlike an old leader who is uh, you know well entrenched in his ways and his and his relationships if a new leader can take advantage of that discontinuity then that's perhaps a scenario where new leaders might lead to change
3: I would also say Jeff's article on South Africa that we that Judd and I have used, and like it kind of defined our class in terms of methodology. Mm-hmm. and it's something for people to think about when they're when they're thinking about a country and how to how, you know the history of the country, where it is right now and where it's going forward to kind of really scrub all the different sources and kind of pieces of information. We kind of consider it a seminal paper in terms of how we think about uh, teaching our class and making uh, people understand about how to think about a country and where it's going.
0: Yeah, and, and Jeff's paper, by the way, we've, we've zeroed in on uh, on DeClerc and the assessment of DeClerc, but actually it's a validation of why clear-eyed analysis on apartheid South Africa. We highlighted in our class, is, is the IC getting a lot of things right? We focus today on some of the, the IC getting things wrong, but you know, and there's other cases where the IC made some really difficult calls um, that were politically unpopular but really got it right in the end. And Jeff, I, I, putting words in your mouth, I think that's what you captured in your article.
2: Absolutely.
0: All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at CSIS.org slash Africa. Thanks.